On the surface, you might not notice what distinguishes the people who live in one region of France from another. But it's barely 200 years since the Republic of France centralized its authority in Paris and decided to enforce French as the common language. That was all part of an effort to forge a national identity, from the Pyrenees to the Alps, from Marseille to Brittany, and everywhere in between. Author Graham Robb took four years to study local customs and identities all across France. He scoured the countryside on a bicycle and concluded that this variety forms a sort of mosaic that makes France probably the most diverse nation in Europe. From his research, he wrote a landmark book called The Discovery of France, a historical geography from the Revolution to the First World War. It won prestigious awards in Britain within a couple of months of being published. Graham has written a similarly impressive book about the history of the Celts, and he was with us recently on the show to talk about that. Graham, merci for joining us again on Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks for inviting me, Rick. You biked 14,000 miles all around France and spent four years in the library. How did the 14,000 miles of biking help you write a book about the discovery of France? The 14,000 miles were really just, uh, it was a vacation. Uh, My wife and I don't own a car and we like cycling and France is one of the best countries in Europe to cycle because um, so many people do it and drivers are very courteous. And what I really wanted to know was what are all those little places that we are passing through? Because when you're on a bicycle, you notice so many things and you remember things very vividly. So it was really just starting to find out what information there was on these tiny little places that don't appear in any tour guide. And in the old days, which is about more than than 10 years ago, I would just print out all the information I could find on sheets of thin paper, which could be carried in the bicycle panniers and thrown away as we uh, went through each place and and read about it. And eventually I realized I'd amassed so much information that we enjoyed reading about. I thought I should turn this into a book that will put the picture together and, and make it easier to see what it is we're not seeing when we, we drive through these places too quickly. Now, you set out to write a book on histor- the history of France, but really you got so close to the culture, you realized uh, the French were not really what you thought they were. Yes. I think, like a lot of people who study French literature, which I did, at some point, if you go to France, you realize you don't know France at all. And funnily enough, when I got my PhD in French literature at Vanderbilt University, after I graduated, my thesis director, who's French, said, uh, you know, you don't have a PhD in French literature. You have a PhD in Parisian literature. And it's true that when we say French literature, we mean the literature that was produced in that tiny little space, which is central Paris. And even if the writer like Balzac or Victor Hugo came from the provinces, They had to go to Paris in order to become a writer. And beyond Paris, Paris is like ancient Rome, and its empire is France. And beyond it, there are all these different provinces, which were effectively different countries. And even within each province, there are much smaller areas, which the French call pays, which comes from Pagos, or the area occupied by a particular tribe or sub-tribe which have their own identity, both in language and dialect, in their geography, in their outlook on life. And that's what you begin to discover if you walk or cycle through those areas slowly enough. 
Hmm. Because, you know, I've always thought of France as leading the pack in creating a centralized government and having a national identity. And uh, maybe in, in some ways it did, but you point out in your book, 100 years ago, French was a foreign language to the majority of the people living in, quote, France, and it's certainly not quite that simple. So in a way, France had to do some nation building within its own borders. You're quite right. They did set an example in nation building. And when you look at some of the first uh, actions of the revolutionary government after the French Revolution of 1789, you can see them discovering the country in which they lived. And they sent out investigators to explore these different regions and sent out a questionnaire simply asking, which language do people speak in your part of France? And that's how they discovered, to their horror, that most of the people in France couldn't read the decrees huh. that were being made by the revolutionary government. That's so interesting, because when you think of the French Revolution, it followed a period when all of Europe declared war on France and uh, was going to fight and fight and fight until they squashed this notion of uh, you know, getting rid of the old regime. And France had the levy en masse, right? The first time everybody was involved in a war, but most of these people didn't even consider themselves French. So they had a little bit of promotion to do for this cause. That's true. And the same thing happened in the First World War, actually, that uh, people in some parts of France, in the far west in Brittany and in the far east in Alpine regions. <laughs> it's like, why do I want to help many these guys? People, yes. And in fact, they had no idea what was going on. And there are many stories of uh, soldiers in the French army fighting the Germans who were shot by their own side because they were speaking Breton or some other non-French language and were no, mistaken this for is the enemy. In World War One. Yes, in World War One. You're kidding. Yeah. French troops who couldn't communicate with their French commanders because they weren't from Paris, basically. Yes, and because they spoke a, ah. a completely different language. And these weren't just dialects. These are, are separate languages that were all spoken within France. So they could have been saying Vive la France in Britain and they misunderstood. Couldn't. Yeah, they're unlikely oh. to have been saying Vive la France because a lot of people <laughs> didn't consider themselves... French. They considered themselves Breton right. or, or Gascon. Or. So before the French Revolution, what did the name France refer to then? France uh, really referred just to the central province, which is now called the Ile-de-France. The Ile-de-France. The area okay. around Paris. France was a place that was somewhere else, and it was associated with the capital, with Paris. And you, you still find that today. There's still um, an antagonism towards people from Paris, as though they came from a different country. And if you're in a slightly xenophobic area in France, very often the worst thing to be is a Parisien. And it's funny because when I wrote a book about Parisians, my French publisher who uh, published a translation of it said, well, we can't call it Parisien mm. because Parisians on its own sounds too much like an insult. But you wrote in your book that today that's starting to change and the people in Paris will more readily tell you their roots are from Brittany or Corsica or something like this. Yes, there's a kind of romantic uh, attachment to certain provinces. <laughs> but uh, A generation point, ago, that was a different thing. Yes, a very different thing. Yes, and, and people still are very often attached to their native province, as, as though to a, a different country. Graham, when you think about ancient tribal areas of France still enduring, I mean, it's a romantic thing for a traveler to think they can find the old cultural identities. And, you know, you go to Languedoc or places in, in the fringe of France, and, and you find the pride still there today. Where are some places that you'd recommend where you're really struck by how the people are probably more identifying with their local region than with France as a whole? I think one of the best places to go to, to rediscover that 
that tribal France is probably the Pyrenees because you can get to the Pyrenees very easily along those lovely flat valleys that spread out like the, the fingers of a hand. You can get up to the high valleys quite easily. Mm -hmm. And because of the geography of the place, I mean, it's hellish for a cyclist in the Pyrenees, you will come across very small places which are isolated for much of the year and which aren't particularly antagonistic to foreigners. And you can see people living in much the same way that they've lived for hundreds of years. And if you go from one area to the next, you don't have to force yourself to observe everything. Just notice things as you go along. What do you notice? You will see the differences. You, is it the culture, the cuisine, the language, the way people look and dress? What do you notice as you're biking through these areas that you go, oh boy, these people are, are more you know, Basque than they are French. Well, I'll tell you, uh, if you're on a bicycle, what you really notice is the different behavior of dogs. You'll be in some area and the dogs will bark at you and run out and attack you. And um, and usually you don't spend too much time in those places. And then in another place, the dogs will be friendly and they'll run up to you. Or in another place, they'll ignore you. And that's, in some ways, more revealing than human behavior because they haven't been trained uh, to be polite or they, they don't have opinions on tourists. And very often the behavior of domestic animals does reflect something in, in that particular community. And actually the places in the Pyrenees where you find dogs at their most hostile are the places which lie on the ancient Compostela pilgrim routes because they see lone strangers coming through throughout the year, really, and are very often suspicious of these people who aren't uh, doing trade, who are just passing through right. and, and who aren't from the region. Now, most people, when they think of the uh, community Santiago, they think it, of it kicking off at San Juan Pied de la Por up in the uh, Pyrenees Mountains, and then they walk for about a month to get to Santiago de Compostela in the northwest of Spain. But historically, the trek, the pilgrimage, starts in Paris. Did you encounter much of the Camino de Santiago north of the Pyrenees between Paris and the mountains that separate France and Spain? Yes, quite a lot. And there are hundreds of pilgrims who still follow the ancient routes. And the church apparently allows you to complete the pilgrimage on horseback and on a bicycle because for some reason the bicycle is reputed to be a particularly exacting form of transport, which it isn't. So very often you find yourself talking to pilgrims who, who assume that you are on mm. a pilgrimage like them. And you, you meet a lot of fascinating people, and quite often uh, people who are doing it barefoot, mm. just like uh, medieval pilgrims. Well, you saw this on your bike experience then, pilgrims. Oh, yes, yes, and people from all over the world. As you're traveling around France, you're likely to see that conch shell, the, the symbol of the pilgrim, that shell that has like a bunch of uh, fingers going out from a, a starting point, and it's often with uh, yellow outlines. But I was just in Chartres, and I noticed that was on the community Santiago there. Yes, it is. So there were several routes snaking down through France, which probably predate the shrine mm -hmm. at Santiago de Compostela. So they, they really are ancient routes, and a lot of them were originally the routes that were taken by transhumant flocks of sheep and, and cattle and goats when they were heading for the summer pastures in, in the high mountains. Oh, so the pilgrims in the Middle Ages were following paths made by, by the, the animals. <laughs> yes, because very often there was no road. There was Fascinating. just a, a, yeah, a zone of back transit. Then, most of the serious travel would have done on rivers and on, by boat, I understand. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Graham Robb. His book is The Discovery of France and all the things you learned from four years in a library, okay, but also 
14,000 miles pedaling through this arguably the most diverse country in Europe. Graham, we were talking about mean dogs being an indication that there's a lot of local pride mm-hmm. in a region. Also, when you travel around France, you, you see a lot of castles and military fortifications embedded deep within this centralized and well-established biggest nation in Western Europe. Uh, what do you learn when you look at castles within the country reminding us that it wasn't always one big country. Well, it it does remind you that modern France probably existed in that shape maybe 2,000 years ago before the Romans came when there was an alliance of Celtic tribes. But in almost all the intervening period, there were frontiers all over France uh, that weren't necessarily natural frontiers. If you come from Britain, very often people refer to the fact that a lot of the southwest used to be English. And in fact, that's where the uh, wine-growing region of Bordeaux came from. This was to Mm. to satisfy the English market. And people will will joke about it. But as you say, you have very clear signs of what used to be Hmm. the frontiers. Because France, after all, is a kind of crossroads of the, the Western European isthmus. You know, it's on the Mediterranean, it's on the Atlantic, it's on the North Sea. So it's Hmm. always been a a zone of of transit rather than the the fixed entity. The Loire Valley is a particularly uh, vivid example of that. I mean, I understand the Loire was marked the the northern reach of the Moors when they invaded Europe from Africa. It happened to be the border between Nazi and and Vichy France uh, in World War II still the border when you talk about weather in North France and South France, and it's lined with, it's lined with castles. And they're pleasure castles today, but the, the origins of those pleasure palaces were serious fortified castles, as that would have been one of these you know, regional borders you're talking about. Yes, as you say, it is very often only when you cross the Loire that you start to hear crickets and you can <laughs> feel the, the warmth of the south. in the south of France. You know, when you think of France, it, it's the biggest country in Western Europe, but Sort of the culture is nibbled away by German culture in Alsace and by Spanish culture creeping over the Pyrenees and certainly by Italian culture coming in to the Côte d'Azur and, and the area around Nice. It's not as vast. It's, it's more diverse, I guess, than, than you might recognize. Yes, and as you say, also um, Arab culture uh, taking a different form now but coming across the Mediterranean form of migrant workers. Now, that is an interesting thing that you do talk about in your book, and, and I'm curious... How did your studies reflect on on the non-white Muslim French society today? Because, in a sense, this is nothing new. Yes, it's nothing new. And it must be said that there is uh, still quite a lot of virulent uh, racism in some parts of France. I have a friend who's a distinguished historian of, of French politics who comes from Martinique. And he's quite intrepid. He's been all over France. He's worked in tiny little municipal libraries. Uh, but there are some parts of France that he won't go to because it's just too uncomfortable and uh, hmm. sometimes even dangerous. So it is still, in parts, it can be a very xenophobic place. Now, when you think about that, there's a, a huge population of basically migrant... Is it too simplistic, or are these? is it basically migrant laborers, people coming in from poor countries to find uh, employment in France? Yes, there's a settled immigrant population, many of whom have been there for many generations, but there are also seasonal migrant workers, especially in the south of France. Uh, very often in autumn, if you cycle through the vineyards in almost any region in France, you'll quite often see uh, Africans uh, from West Africa working in the vineyards uh, or picking fruit in the, the Rhone Valley. It's a seasonal population, which actually ref- also reflects 
much older trends because people did used to move about France a lot more looking for, for work, um, very often for large parts of the year. Uh, people would leave the Pyrenees and the Alps and leave the women in charge of everything and would be seen as foreign migrants in the, the northern cities and were also treated very harshly. Well, you know, it's so interesting to recognize in your travels things are in a state of flux and there are bully tribes and there are, you know, um, meek tribes and there are desperate people and there are people who are well set up and there are people that move one place just to get a job so they can feed their kids. Graham Robb, author of The Discovery of France, thank you so much for putting in 14,000 miles and taking careful notes so all of us travelers can have a little better understanding when we put in probably a few less miles on our bikes as we explore France. You're very welcome, Rick. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to France and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Paris's top sites, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next French adventure, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.